We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. This episode, we'll be talking USA versus Mexico, uh, Women's World Cup 2027, UCL and MLS preview, Thin Red Line, Bad News Soccer Bears, Home Games in America, and so much more. But first joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how you doing on this? Uh, well, we're recording this bright and early Thursday morning, April 20th in the year 2023. I am doing well. I see that you're rocking a rat t-shirt. That is your favorite band, correct? It is my favorite band. Uh, Rob Stone actually gave this to me, I think, for my birthday at one point. Uh, I'm I'm rocking a rat t-shirt. Greatest American band, and I think the greatest band ever. Uh, But, you know, I'm I'm willing to be convinced otherwise. Uh, And, uh, yeah, I just love them. I love them. So you go rat, Beatles, Rolling Stones. Pretty much. And yeah, Beatles would definitely be above uh, the Rolling Stones. Yeah, and that's uh, that's that's my hierarchy in uh, in bands. How you doing, my friend? Did you uh, see anything or read anything or couple talk things. about anything interesting? I did finally watch the Waco Netflix documentary ah. that both you and my father recommended. And I don't you, know. If you knew about this story, right? I mean, this was was this part of your consciousness? Vaguely, not okay, that right. much actually. Uh, I don't know if "enjoyed it" is the right word because it's pretty disturbing. Uh, but I was riveted. It's yeah, a okay. crazy story. Right. It's it is a crazy story. It's uh, it's nuts, and it still it still resonates today in so many other things, and it has you know like tentacles uh, of that moment uh, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, number two, have you watched the latest episode of Ted Lasso? No, I haven't watched any of the Ted Lasso. Maybe my favorite episode in the history oh, of the okay. show. Yeah, I heard. I, I saw some uh, online people were uh, saying it was very, very good. They played a friendly against Ajax in Amsterdam. Ah, yes. And then afterwards, they everybody had a night out in Amsterdam and all this craziness ensued. And you might recall, Amsterdam is the city that essentially birthed the show because yes. that's where Brennan Hunt developed a love for soccer. They had that comedy troupe there. They were all, all over there. And uh, yeah. So yeah, it was a poignant episode, and I thought very well executed. Uh, you, you, I don't think you've lived a life until you've had a night out in Amsterdam. My night out in Amsterdam, I had multiple, but one that was in particularly memorable would be back in 1998-ish, fall of 1998-ish. And uh, the band uh, that I was in were touring and opening up for Hootie and the Blowfish. I think I've talked about this before uh, on their European tour, and one of the stops was Amsterdam. Um, as a matter of fact, during that stop, uh, I got a call at the hotel we were staying in and said, Hey, uh, Johan Cruyff would like to invite you out. He's opening up a, you know, like a, a, a small sided game at a park, local park. And I went out and there was Cruyff and we hung out and, uh, it was incredible. So that was part of the trip. But the night out was after the show, we, the guys in my band and the Hootie guys, all went to this bar and proceeded to uh, shut it down after a long night of debauchery, including uh, a jukebox that was just chef's kiss. And I'll never forget sitting in the bar and singing at the top of our lungs some Skid Row with uh, Darius Rucker, the uh, lead singer of uh, Hootie and the Blowfish. And it was just a wonderful night of, of 80s hair metal, if you will, and good friends uh, out in Amsterdam. I remember some of it. So, Yeah, I did a study abroad uh, semester in Florence when I was in college, and I traveled around Europe when I could, and I did go to Amsterdam. I spent a night there, and I'm told I had a great time. 
<laughs> when I was 16 years oldish, I went uh, for a trip to Amsterdam and to Holland to play in the Holland Cup. And we stayed at like these youth hostels. I think I still have pictures of basically it was like 30 cots set up in a room where we stayed as kids and played in this uh, soccer tournament. So that was uh, that was cool. It was really uh, it was really fun. I was really lucky. So lots of stories when it comes to um, the first girl that I ever liked was from uh, was from Holland back when I was I was going to school in, in Athens. All right, I digress. It was a long, long time ago. But yes, Amsterdam. If you go to Amsterdam and you don't have a story after going to Amsterdam, you've done something wrong. Um, did you read anything or uh, watch anything besides uh, Ted Lasso? No, that's it. Okay, that's it. That's all, that's all you got. I got a couple of things. Uh, number one, when it comes to um, books, I just finished, and it's a real quick uh, quick read. Uh, Kat Timp, you might uh, know her from uh, the Gutfeld Show, uh, and she's a contributor on Fox, and um, she's a writer, and she's a comedian. It's a real quick, uh, quick read. Um, really interesting, really entertaining. I would expect nothing less from a girl from uh, Hamtramck, Michigan. And uh, it's... Uh, even though you know she specializes in 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 comedy and everything, it's it's actually really heartfelt and and uh, interesting to hear her progression to uh, to television. Uh, and then I went back and you know I'm watching older movies. This isn't necessarily that old a movie in that it was. Let me make sure I know that I find out when well, when this came out. This would have come out in uh, 1998, so it's it's not that long ago. But the Thin Red Line. Have you ever seen this movie? It's a, a war movie. Sure. So you've seen it. It's a classic. It was nominated for many, many Academy Awards. I only bring it up because last last episode, I think I talked about a a, uh, a movie that had all this incredible cast of all these great names that was a crap movie. This is the opposite where, not the opposite, but this is a movie where it has an incredible cast, an array of talent and stars, and also it lives up to all of their, uh, their stardom. Sean Penn, Adrian Brody, Jim Cavazell. Uh, ben Chaplin, George Clooney, John Cusack, Woody Harrelson. I mean, the list goes on. Jared Leto, just go, Nick Nolte, John C. Riley, John Travolta. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Every scene has somebody new and big and stars in it. And it's just, uh, it's a really interesting war movie, but it's much more of a, like, it's almost a, it's almost a dreamlike sequence, the whole, the whole movie. Anyway, I, I recommend it if you haven't seen it. Uh, all right, should we light this candle, my friend? Let's do it. All right, let's get right to it, right? U.S., Mexico. We are recording this, as we said, on Thursday morning, so you know, 12 hours after uh, the uh, game that happened last night. I, I think just in general about U.S., Mexico, this was a relatively uneventful and forgettable type of game. But it's still U.S.-Mexico. And any time that you have that, as far as I'm concerned, I will, I will sit and I will watch and I will be interested. Uh, ultimately, I don't think that anybody um, set themselves apart from a U.S. perspective individually and certainly collectively as a group. But I was heartened in that after they gifted the US, uh, Mexico a goal, they had it within their ability and their mentality to adjust and find a way back into a game in an environment that was absolutely pro-Mexico. So that in and of itself, I think, is good. And when people say, why are we watching this? Why does, uh, why does it matter? The pool that you have, all right, establishes the talent and fosters that talent that may go on and star for you at the quote-unquote biggest games. And this is an opportunity for a group of American players that may or may not be involved going forward to play against their biggest rival in front of 60,000 people in, front, in, in a circumstance, in an environment that is hostile. And that in and of itself is good for uh, the experience. So I don't think that this was a throwaway game and that they made, uh, that they made money. That's, you know, that's a good thing. You put that money back into the program, you put that mo uh, money back into soccer. And so uh, all in all, this is not going to go in a time capsule, but I don't think that this is, was a futile and, and useless type of uh, game to have. And we'll discuss the pro-Mexico environment in the Ask Alexi yes. section. I thought it was one of the most flat U.S.-Mexico games I've ever watched. We had to wait until second half stoppage time for any kind of tempers flaring moment between Acosta and Sanchez. So what do you want? When they're walking out for the anthem, does somebody to Colcock somebody and get it going? Is that what you want? That's all I'm asking for. <laughs> 
Uh, I thought the U.S. was quite poor. They had a chance in the opening minutes. Jordan Morris threw on goal. It took a heavy touch. Acevedo came out. They collided. The ball almost squirted in. And then you had the goal in the 80-something minute. Other than that, I can't recall a single other clear chance the U.S. created. Mexico wasn't that great either, but I thought the little bit of good soccer that was played was mostly played by Mexico. They were the better team. So the U.S. was somewhat fortunate to eke out a draw, but it does mean they upped their unbeaten run against Mexico to five games. All right, so let's go through the, uh, the starting 11 here. Sean Johnson, I did not think had a particularly great game. Uh, he made some good saves. I didn't think he was good in terms of his distribution, which was, which was strange. I thought that he seemed tentative and and problematic almost in terms of uh, the distribution. And look, I know this is a group that's just kind of getting together. They have, what, one training, two training, uh, and they go, but that's that's no excuse. The same thing applies for uh, any other team that's going to be in this situation. Uh, I thought the back four was good. I thought of the back four, I thought Serginho Dest, who we know loves to go forward, uh, was the most impactful. I thought Walker Zimmerman had a really good game in terms of his uh, clearance. DeAndre Edlin was, was okay. Aaron Long was actually okay, except that, you know, he was involved uh, ultimately in, uh, it, not alone, but sharing in terms of the problem when it came to the goal. But I, I thought, the, especially the first half, the, the, def, the defense was solid. I didn't think the, the midfield was existent um, other than James Sands, who I thought had actually probably, if anybody's going to come out of this game improving their stock, I think it would be James Sands. Kellen Acosta was, was bad at times. Um, and... You know, Cade Cowell kind of ran around and did stuff, but didn't have a real impact on the game. Uh, Jordan Morris, you could see, had the desire to do things, but it just didn't uh, come to fruition. Brandon Vasquez, um, you know, if, you're, if your job is to be up there and hold that ball and to get big, you got to be able to do that on a consistent, uh, consistent basis. And he just never, never felt like he got into the game and would draw it into the game. I think the big talking point will be Jesus Ferreira. Jesus Ferreira was played in a much more withdrawn type of position, which he certainly can play. And there's many that argue that's actually, that that is actually his better position. But I thought that in terms of going forward, he was non-existent in terms of creating things. In terms of keeping the ball when he got it, it was comical at times in terms of <laughs> giving the ball up. And when he came back into that pocket where theoretically you want him to be able to do some things and he's not just sitting up, the, up, up top, he looked lost. And so this is a perfect case of the life of a goal scorer, the life of a striker, where you can play like crap for 89 minutes, score the winning goal. That's what people are going to remember. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. But that in general... Uh, agree with that uh, assessment of these uh, players? Well, on the starting lineup, I thought it was an odd 11 that Anthony Hudson put out. You only had two midfielders in Sands and Acosta, neither of whom are great passers, and then four attacking players in Cal, Morris, Ferrer, and Vasquez. It was essentially like a 4-2-4. felt very disconnected. They were bypassing the midfield altogether. It was a lot of defenders trying to play long balls to strikers, and it just didn't come off at all. So for most of that match, I thought the U.S. really lacked fluidity. It wasn't until... Around the 65th minute, he made those two changes where he brought in Morris and Sonora, took out Cal and Vasquez, and then it felt more balanced in the U.S. play improved a little bit after that. Yeah, like you said, Sonora came in, uh, Morris came in, Miazga came in a little bit later, Caleb Wiley got a little touch, a couple minutes at the end, and Paxton Pomacall also got a couple uh, minutes uh, at, at the end. And it should be said, Mexico only played with two in the midfield as well, but one of them was Luis Chavez, who's a very technical player and can stitch everything together. Uh, so I felt like Mexico's passing was a bit more crisp thanks to him being on the field. The U.S. kind of lacked that player. Frankly, the whole squad was devoid of any midfield creativity. When the squad was announced, that was the one thing I looked at and said, oh, that's a bit strange. I don't know who's going to add some quality yeah, to the midfield. You should be able to complete passes. I don't think that that's asking too much. And so when when Kellen Acosta gives uh, Aaron Long a hospital pass there at the end, and then Aaron made it even worse by losing the ball in a horrible place and uh, and you know, causing the breakaway and ultimately leading to the to the goal, you kind of saw it coming. But it was still a gift to Mexico. And you know, credit Mexico, they got the, they got the goal. But then making making the changes and ultimately that the goal actually comes off of what should have been two nothing from Mexico. They hit the crossbar and the U.S. goes right down the other end. And Sergino Dest, like we mentioned, I, you know, gets as much credit as anybody on this goal, dribbling through four or five people, really showing his his ability. Uh, 
and then laying it off to Jordan Morris, who we know loves his right foot. And in that moment, everybody in the building knew exactly what he was going to do. And he still did it. And he put it on a platter, had a little help on the defender, but ultimately uh, Jesus Ferreira there to finish it off. Sergino Dest and Jesus Ferreira to me are the two players who the narrative changes because of that one play. I I thought Dest was actually having a rough night. Now he was playing on the left where Mm -hmm. he's not as good, but I thought his lack of confidence was laid to bear throughout that game. But then he makes that one incredible play, as you mentioned, reminiscent of Gio's run at the Aztec New York Taganel match. Um, and Ferreira gets on the end of it and scores a goal. So all of a sudden, it spruces up their performances. That adds a couple of points to their player ratings. So yeah, it is amazing how that one play could change our perception of both those performances. I did think the best U.S. players on the night were Walker Zimmerman, as you mentioned, and James Sands. I've been harping on this in the absence of Tyler Adams, and we don't know if he'll be back for the Nations League semis, the lack of another true six. I think Sands showed that he can be that guy. If Adams is not around, come the Nations League semis, would not surprise me if James Sands starts in that midfield with McKenney and Musa. Yeah, I thought he had. A, I thought he had a good game. Um, when it, when it comes to Jesus Ferreira, um, you know, often criticized and maligned, and 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 some of it justly and, and fairly, I think. Um, yes, he had a poor eighty nine minutes, but he is on the field to score goals. And there is nothing more valuable, as we say time and time again in our game, than scoring goals. And he did that last night. He ultimately scored the goal. doesn't matter how. It matters that it goes in the back of the net. And that is all that matters. And keep in mind, that is all that ultimately will be remembered is Jesus Ferreira was able to get on the uh, on the score sheet. And a lot of people were screaming and yelling, saying, hey, take him out, take him out, take him out. And it, he came good ultimately for this team and for uh, Hudson, who who kept him uh, who kept him in there. But you know this is this is the nature of the position. I used to argue with Eric Winalda all the time, and he would make the point that I didn't want to um, <laughs> I, I didn't want to entertain in the moment and give him the satisfaction of agreeing with him. And he would state, you know, to my face, all I have to do is have one moment. Okay. I can suck most of the game and have that one moment and I have done my job. And and I said, and all I have to do is have that one moment where I suck, but I have to be good 89, 89 uh, minutes out of the game. But if I'm good 89 minutes out of the game and I have that one moment I suck, then I had a bad game. So it's just the nature of the beast. I'm going to bring Eric and Alda up in a minute, but oh, first a okay. couple more points. Uh, the center forward position, as you mentioned, Vasquez was poor. Uh, some bad news on the injury front, Daryl DK, ACL. Um, he's going to be Achilles. Uh, he's going to be out six to nine months. So that takes him out of the picture, obviously, for the summer, Nations League, Gold Cup, etc. We're still waiting on Falloting Balogun. Who knows when he's going to make a decision? Uh, Pepe seems like a guy that's taken a step mm-hmm. forward. But other than that, is Jesus Ferreira almost by default still that other center forward in the squad? I mean, I guess. But, you know, my, my kingdom for a striker. It's just we're, we're still. And I know we talk about being stasis and all that. And I get that. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. Is, is there somebody else out there that I, that I'm that I'm that I'm missing? And yeah, so I, I don't know if it's going to be by, by committee or somebody's just going to again use the opportunity and step up. And then second point: last night watching the U.S. play Mexico, U.S. with an interim manager was that the first time that this situation kind of annoyed you because you ought to be able to glean things from this game, mm-hmm. but it's undermined by the fact that the U.S. has an interim coach right now. Well, it's not the first time because you remember back when uh, Sarakin was sure. part of it, it, we were kind of going through this same introspective and frustrating moment where the team does not have any leadership and therefore has, well, it's not that they don't have leadership, it, they don't have any stable leadership and any kind of, a type of leadership that we can be confident is going to continue on. And therefore, whatever, while they may have direction, we don't know if that is ultimately the direction they are going to go. And then we're left on the outside to have to you know, talk about it and, and analyze it and debate about something that could go in any number of directions going forward. And you know that, that can be frustrating. We didn't glean anything new last night in terms of um, the direction and what's going to happen other than this summer. Uh, uh, President Cindy Cohn was, uh, was on the broadcast last night and didn't really tell us anything that we, uh, that we don't know other than, than they hope to fill the positions. Although she did say, that the sporting director, the Ernie Stewart position, was going to be filled and that that person was going to have the power and the oversight of all of the national teams in the same way that Ernie did. And why why is that important? Because there's also that GM position of Brian, Brian McBride. Now, 
I, I don't know ultimately how she's looking and how the Federation is looking to position this structure going forward, but I, I'm, I'm curious as to whether that's the only position that's going to be filled and then that person ultimately is going to make the decision on the coach or is the GM also going to be hired for specifically uh, the, uh, the U.S. men's national team? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, on Eric Winalda, sure. uh, he cracked me up on Twitter in the lead up to this match because I, in my years at Fox, I've worked with many 90s U.S. national team players from yourself <laughs> to Eric yeah. Winalda to Brad Friedel to Kobe sure. Jones, et cetera. And all of you are very sensitive about the fact that when people look at the U.S.-Mexico rivalry, they use 2000 as the line of demarcation. They always bring up the record prior to that, which was heavily in favor of Mexico, and then the record since then, which is heavily in favor of the U.S., and you guys feel like you don't get enough credit for the success you had in the 90s. And that's when the rivalry really flipped. And Eric was on fire on Twitter about this. He saw a graphic like the one I just mentioned with 2000 being the line of demarcation. He said, what about the 90s record? Show me that. And he kept badgering people. And then when he wasn't getting back the numbers that he wanted, he said, no, you're doing it wrong. You got to count this and that and the other. Uh, and I know you feel the same way. I mean, it's something that bugs you guys. I mean, I'm not losing sleep over it. People are going to do what they're going to do, but it is a little selective in terms of the the memory memory and the reality of it. And and I, I will say that you know because of let's be honest, because of social media and because of the you know the pumping up of this rivalry, it, it took on a new meaning and a new significance in the I guess the aughts, if you if you will, and the whole Columbus thing, uh, you know, all of that kind of stuff uh, happening, but it. The rivalry was there, and from a pure numbers perspective, there was plenty of successes that occurred in the 90s. Eric insists the real Dos Acero is the 91 Gold Cup semis. Peter Vermes scoring, yep. that was the game that flipped the rivalry. I also remember a 4-0 at RFK, Claudia Reyna dishing out assists like Magic Johnson circa 1988. Yep. You played in that penalties, game, Penalties, right? beating uh, Mexico in penalties in Copa America in 1995 yep. uh, and progressing on. I mean, if you just look at it, Purely in terms of competitive moments, obviously you put 20, uh, 2002 in the World Cup beating Mexico and that, you know, until something changes in the future, that is always going to be the most important U.S.-Mexico uh, victory from the U.S. But if you look at it, I mean, Copa America is the next biggest tournament in which we have faced Mexico and in that one we beat them too. So when it comes to major tournaments, we own Mexico. And you were a protagonist in maybe the most iconic image in the history of this rivalry. Every time the U.S. and Mexico play, <laughs> I see this picture of you on the ground surrounded by Mexico players. Can you describe what occurred here? So this, uh, for people that are that are just listening and not watching, um, this would have been in the Rose Bowl sometime in the late 90s. And um, this would have been, uh, obviously, US, uh, a U.S.-Mexico game. Ramon Ramirez, who is somewhere in this, uh, this scrum here that you see, uh, it was a full frontal assault on my, uh, on my nether regions, as you can see as I'm writhing in pain. And the photographer just got a wonderful moment here of the just, just post-kick into, uh, into my manhood. And I'm falling down and screaming in agony, as one would. Uh, fear not, I was okay. I was able to continue on with, uh, with my, my career and my, and my life off of the field, um, despite, as I said, being frontally assaulted here. Uh, and, and yeah, so this, is, uh, <laughs> this was a game. I think we ended up losing uh, to Mexico in that game, but this was the back and forth that went on. And this was back before VAR. This was back before, I mean, you needed kind of protruding bone in order to get <laughs> even a yellow card back in the game at that point. But it was already on fire. It was already heated. And, um, you know, this was just one of those moments that, and, you, you know, we have so many of them, Kobe Jones uh, getting kicked in the World Cup and, you know, all those different things. It's just, but that's what a rivalry is about. And even, you know, last night as, you know, as potentially meaningless of a game that it was, I was riveted. I'm in. I, if it's U.S.-Mexico, I'm in. And I know I'm not alone. I know there are a lot of people that were. And it's because of all of those things that would happen. And we can argue about when it did start or didn't start, but it, it, it started and it's here and it's not going anywhere. Going to be a little bit different given 26 and, and, and all that. And I don't know what happens after that, but you know, still, it doesn't matter whether, you know, whether it's a soccer game or chess or cards or anything else. If I'm playing against Mexico, I want to win and I want to beat them. 
in the U.S., as we mentioned, unbeaten in the last five meetings. Yep. The next chapter will be uh, this summer in the Nations League semifinals. And then potentially Gold Cup. Uh, so, yeah, there's there's some competitive games uh, where, you know, hopefully both teams will have much more, much fuller types of representation when it comes to the uh, uh, to the National League. That's nothing against the players that were out there last night. It was just the reality of it not being a FIFA window and obviously being populated almost entirely by uh, MLS players who were able to leave their clubs midweek to uh, uh, to play in this game. Uh, so Sands, big winner for you uh, coming out of this game. Okay, got it. And um, does this, would this change your view of Anthony Hudson in any way? No. No, exactly. If I mean, anything, I think a little bit less of him because I didn't like the starting lineup he put out, but not, I'm not going to make too big a deal of it. <laughs> you're not going to make it a too big a deal. Um, all right, listen, um, should we take a break and come back? Does that sound good? Yep. All right, we will take a break. And when we come back, we got some uh, MLS previewing and uh, Champions League stuff that we need to talk about and then uh, a big weekend of games uh, here domestically and overseas. Don't go anywhere. Okay, welcome back. Uh, where should we go, Mossy, first? Because we got a, a full lineup here coming up this weekend. Yes, let's start with MLS. Okay. Nashville hosting LAFC. Ooh, interesting. The reigning champs against the reigning MVP. LAFC, the only remaining unbeaten in the league. They're coming off that El Trafico victory. They might have one eye on their CCL semifinal first leg against Philadelphia. They take on Nashville, who are still very reliant on Hani Mukhtar, who has two goals and three assists in eight games this season. Didn't start the first couple of games of the season. How do you see this one? Well, we saw Hani Mukhtar, uh, when he scored the goal last uh, weekend in uh, NYCFC, it wasn't enough uh, for them. Uh, I think that this Nashville team is still trying to figure out what they are in 2023. I don't think that we have seen the best of them, but they have still been able to hang around. Let's see where they are. Uh, you know, they're, they got 11 points right now sitting at sixth. Um, I think they're better or they can be better than that. And just what the doctor ordered would be to come up and beat I mean, is it is it arguably the best team in the league? I know everything's subjective here right now, but you know, LAFC, they still have a game in hand and they're at 17 points. They're behind St. Louis. We know St. Louis came out big at the beginning. Is it is it are you okay if I say that LAFC is the best team in the league? Absolutely. Okay. When you're the reigning supporter shield yeah, MLS right? Cup winners, the only remaining unbeaten, and you're cruising in CCL as well, I think you have the belt. Even if New England has 17 points, Cincinnati has 17 points, uh, you know. St. Louis, like I said, has 18 points. You're still good with that. Yep. Okay. So look, they come into Nashville. We know that that's an, an incredible environment. I think they're going to be they're going to be flying. Uh, we saw maybe Aaron Lon got that out of his system <laughs> against uh, Mexico. At least that's what LEFC folks, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure are hoping. But this is not going to be easy. Um, I still, I just think that I don't know what it is, but I, I Nashville, I still think is missing something though. Um, but LEFC is is kind of due for one of those one of those games. Um, do you think this is the game? Yeah, it might be because really? like I said, they're gonna have one eye on that CCL yeah. semifinal. He might rotate a little bit, true and little. So we'll all right, see. So this has Ty written all over it. Okay. Uh what's next? Seattle, Minnesota. Seattle looking to bounce back from that disastrous uh defeat to Portland, which uh really upset Brian Schmetzer. Yeah. I mean, when Brian Schmetzer is angry, you know you've effed up, right? Uh, if you're one of his players, because, you know, he, uh, he is the most in the, in the best possible way, the most mild mannered, um, coach out there, at least from the outside, I've never been in a locker room with him, but he was not happy and he was, and it was much more about the attitude as opposed to the X's and O's of his team. So now you come back against a Minnesota loons team and, you know, you get to, you know, you get to find a way. I mean, even though obviously it's not a, a rival, but you get to find a way back into it. And I would expect Seattle to come back. And I mean, I th I think they're gonna, I don't think they're going to have a problem. You know, I was uh, I was on uh, a podcast this week with uh, Kendra Dusain Alden up there in Minnesota, uh, talking about you know the Loons' interesting season that they that they are having right now, where Reynoso, who has has been such a insert your word, talisman, whatever, special player. And almost that that psychological effect of, well, we can do it without him. You know, you can fly Dumble. You don't, you don't need that feather. 
and they have flown. This is this has been pretty impressive what they have done. Now, it doesn't mean that they wouldn't like him back, and who knows if if and when he is going to come back, but they are I still don't think they're as good a team. I don't think it's crazy to say that, but they are still a quality team and they have found ways to get uh, to get points despite not having that one person that they know can do magical things given uh, the history. Is there such a thing as too much Alexi Lalas? You're on this pod, you're going on other ones, Gold Cup draw, Apple 360? Yeah. No, there's never uh, too much of me, as a matter of fact. Um, it's just goodness. I mean, can you have too much goodness? I don't think so. Can you have too much awesome? I don't think so. I, I, well, we'll digress because you asked, the, you asked the, uh, the question. When people ask me to come on podcasts, and you know, the whole podcast world opened up, especially over the last 10 years, I look at it as more reps. I look at it as an opportunity to maybe get to people that don't see me or don't hear me. So I, I love doing it. You know, I love talking about this game. I don't think that it takes anything away from what we do. And I certainly don't, I don't give away gold. You know, I, 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 I keep that for us here. Don't you worry, my friend. But, um, you know, when people, especially people that I like and are quality, uh, like Kendra is and, but I'm, you know, I'm going on some that, you know, have a hundred followers or, you know, it's, if I got the time, you know, I, I have no problem spending a few minutes and talking about the game that I love. NYCFC hosting FC Dallas, both teams coming off victories uh, last week. NYCFC beat Nashville, Dallas mm-hmm. beat RSL. We talked about Jesus Ferreira in an international context. Uh, from a club standpoint, he's picked yeah. up where he left off last season. He's got five goals already. And there's some talk about when is he going to make that move to Europe following in Ricardo Pepe's footsteps? Could it be as early as this summer? I try to put myself, myself in the shoes of a, uh, a recruiter, a scouter, uh, if you will, a scout that, that is watching Jesus Ferreira. And you know where he fits in, what type of player. And we've already talked about you know, what his best positions. He, he was even asked last night during the U.S.-Mexico game about where he was most comfortable playing. And he was like, 9-10. You know, so it's just kind of somewhere up there, but there's no real definitive type of place. And so I think, I think it would be hard. Yes he, yes, he scores goals, but if you are scouting for a specific team that plays a specific way, it doesn't matter who you're scouting, you want that person to fit in. And I don't know, it, reporting back to your superiors, they ask you, well, what type of player is this? I don't know. What would you say? What, how would you, how would you explain what type of player Jesus Ferrer is? Give me a comp out there, if you will, either that exists today or maybe exists in the past. Well, I think he fancies himself a Roberto Firmino, a guy that can play that false nine role. In fact, he told us that when we had him on as a guest on this podcast. Yeah, but Firmino, I think, from a physical perspective, does more things and is better and more, for lack of a better word, I think, rugged in the way that he does it. So, yeah, I, I, I don't think that's a, a apt. Yeah, he's a unique player. I don't think he can be a center forward, uh, a true center forward in any kind of high-level European context. So it's got to be a team that plays. It, 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 he is a unique player in that respect. It's got to be a team that's got wingers that are going to cut in and score goals, and he can function as more of a floating around, playmaking center forward. Well, all of that is to say that it, whatever it is, he's good with Dallas. And he functions in his you know, best capacity when he's playing uh, for Dallas. And he looks the most comfortable when he is playing uh, Dallas. Remains to be seen whether that can be replicated someplace else, either through changes or something that already exists uh, over there. All right, all of, that, uh, all of that said, NYCFC versus FC, uh, FC Dallas. I think this is, NYCFC is home, right? Um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say NYCFC goes uh, two in a row. Yeah, so they, uh, they find a way past uh, FC Dallas. Finally, Atlanta hosting Chicago. Atlanta third in the East. Your Greek boy, Jakumakis, has scored in four straight games. He's flying. He's flying. Um, okay, Chicago up, down. You know, they have have games that they play, and then they let the team back in. And uh, so ahead. Only lost once this season, but it's a lot of draws. Right. So that's why they're down there eighth in the East. Eighth in the eighth in the East, and it can be. I'm sure for Ezra Hendrickson doesn't have any hair, but if he did, he would be pulling it out because there's there are many more points that they squandered away even last week where it's there it's in the palm of your hand and they contrive to allow teams back uh teams back in and you know this Atlanta team is still not i think functioning at 100% and still not as good as they uh, as they can be but i think i think they're better than chicago 
And I don't think that it's a dominant performance. I don't think that they blow Chicago out of the water, but I think they do enough to find a way past uh, Chicago. By the way, that is on FS1, right? Correct. Ooh, yes. All right. Uh, shall we transition to Europe? Yeah, let's do that. The UCL semifinals are set. The four teams that had first leg leads advanced from the quarterfinals. We'll take them one by one. The one tie that was still very much up for grabs was Napoli AC Milan. Milan brought a 1-0 lead to the Diego Armando Maradona Stadium. They scored late in the first half. Olivier Giroud set up brilliantly by Rafael Leon. Should have scored. It should have already been up. Then Osimhen equalized in second half stoppage time. 1-1 final. Milan take it 2-1 on aggregate. Both teams missed penalties in this game. Giroud denied by Merit in the first half. And then Varadzkele denied by Mike Mignon in the second half. Napoli also felt like they should have had another penalty in the first half on a play where Leon tackled Chucky Lozano. So a lot going on in this game. But in the end, AC Milan advanced to their first semifinal since 2007 when they won it with Carlo Ancelotti on the bench and Kaká leading the way. I mean, we know how important Osimhen is. And so it would have been nice to have him uh, around for both games. But still, there there were... there were opportunities. I was disappointed in the way that Napoli came out, and I was impressed by the way that Milan, you know, found ways to create multiple opportunities. And like I said, they, you know, they, they didn't sit back. They attacked. They had clear-cut opportunities. And at, at a certain point, you, you kept thinking, "Oh gosh, are they going to rue all of these missed chances?" And this is going to come back and haunt them. But you know, from a from a mentality standpoint, they were really, really, they were really strong, and they deserved. Uh, in uh, to go for uh, to go forward, given these uh, both of these performances in both of these games, Real Madrid two 0 winners at Stanford Bridge. Rodrigo with both goals, so that meant a four 0 aggregate triumph. The reigning champions off to the semis for the eleventh time in the last thirteen seasons. Uh, Christian Pulisic an unused sub in this one. Chelsea four defeats in four games since Frank Lampard returned to the bench. And Chelsea all over the map. I mean, some of the defense. What's, what's the long-haired guy's name on uh, Chelsea? Cucurella. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's just all over the map. I would say one of the worst signings in European <laughs> football history when you consider the price. I mean, he is awful. I, but, you know, there was moments there where he would just freeform it and just go. Even on, on I think, one, on one of the goals, he just ran ahead and, like, it, it was insane. And he missed the chance of the game late in the first half. He couldn't get the ball out of his feet quickly enough and allowed Courtois to recover and stop him. It's, yeah. So it was, I, I, felt, I felt like it was, you know, Real Madrid just kind of sitting back with a, a smoke and a coffee going, this is, this is ridiculous. And at which point they said, all right, let's just finish this off so we can get out of here un, uh, unscathed. And they did. And it was, it wasn't even... Ultimately, it wasn't, I don't think it was even close. And there was this whole hope that, hey, you know, Chelsea is going to come good and all the talent, which they do have, is going to find a way. But this is a, this is a, this team that needs to get to the summer as quickly as possible. Inter Benfica, Inter had a 2-0 first leg advantage. They jumped out to a 3-1 lead in the second leg. So the tie was over at that point. Benfica scored a couple of consolation goals. But Inter move on to their first semifinal since 2010 when they won the treble under Jose Mourinho. Uh, wait, so wait, uh, yeah, Inter. I mean, so now it's Inter and Milan. Yeah, we'll get to that okay. in a minute. Let's right. just wrap up the okay. quarterfinals. I, yeah, I mean, it, there's, that was not, done. there's not that much was to done. say about that. That was done. Uh, then Bayern, Manchester City, City led 1-0. Oh, I'm sorry, City led 3-0 entering the second leg. Uh, Holland missed a penalty in the first half, but then scored in the second half. Uh, Bayern equalized late with a Kimmich penalty, finished 1-1 on the night, 4-1 City on aggregate. They move on to their third straight semifinal appearance. And for Pep, it's his 10th UCL semifinal as manager. Look, I know you're down 3 nothing, okay? But Man City and the way that they came out in that game, they were handing it, at least handing the opportunity to Bayern to at least get back into it with the spacing that they had. And it was just, again, they were just kind of free-forming it out there, which opened it up. And Bayern Munich didn't take it. They said, no, no, it's okay. We don't like this gift. Uh, we're, we're okay where, where, uh, where we are. And they missed the chances that they uh, that they got. And then Holland, being the benevolent uh, man that he is, said, "Okay, I'm going to miss this penalty too." And he flew it over the top. By the way, Ray Hudson, uh, I don't know if you watched the uh, game. It was like great save. The ball went over like ten yards over the top of the uh, uh, the crowd. I love Ray, but <laughs> he was like, "Oh, wonderful save!" I said, no, it's not a save. It's and Holland just skied the thing over the top. And now you think, "Oh, okay, all right." The soccer gods are smiling again, but no. 
And Upa Makano, what a tie for oh him. Oh, my goodness. He gave away the penalty with a handball, which a lot of people had an issue with. I didn't. He had his hands behind the body the whole way, and then at the last minute, for whatever reason, was flapped it about. And so, yeah, I you mean, could go to the, you know, go to all the effort to put your hands behind <laughs> the body. Might as well keep them there and take the hit, right? And then in the second half, when City scored the goal, at first glance, you think, wow, did Holland must have done some nifty move there to get around them. And then you see the replay, and he just fell down on his own before the ball even arrived. Holland just had to kind of step over him and then score the goal. It's, yeah. He, he's a good player, Upa Meccano, but it's just, and, and again, it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of the show. For a defender, you know, it, all it takes is one or two moments where you're not a good player, and that's all that anybody remembers. And that's not, that's not unfair. That is the nature of the job of being a defender, is that you have to be on, on a consistent basis. So... And for Holland, by the way, his 12th Champions League goal this season and 48th in all competitions. So we transition to the semifinals. By the way, I, 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 had, I, I thought Bayern was going to put up much more of a fight, as did our friend uh, Eric uh, Winalda, and we were both wrong. If Leroy Sané scores on that breakaway. Yeah, exactly. That, that if, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, so semifinals, we get Darby, Milan Inter. Uh, you recently on this podcast ranked the great Darbys in the world, and you had that in there in your top five, and now we get a UCL semifinal edition of it. Uh, they've played before in the semis back in 2003. Milan somewhat farcically advanced on away goals, even though both matches were, that, were at the San Siro. Their designated home game ended 0-0, and then Inter's designated home game ended 1-1. They also played... In the quarterfinals in 2005, that tie marred by the behavior of the Inter fans who during the second leg chucked flares onto the stadium. The match had to be stopped. It did lead to one of the most iconic images in recent European football history. If you're watching us instead of listening, you can check this out. This is Marco Materazzi and Rui Costa side by side sort of taking it all in. San Siro looked like a battle zone as the flares were raining down. So hopefully the Inter fans comport themselves better this time around. But, it, you know, there's still two games. There's still going to be a, a home and away type of but situation. But UEFA have gotten rid of the away right. goals rules, so we don't have that scenario. I love this. I, I love that this is happening. I mean, this is kind of a throwback, right? Uh, not just to this, but even even before when, when Italy, when they were kings, it was Milan and Inter and Juve uh, to a certain extent. So this is great. I think this is this is a wonderful type of matchup. And and while I love Napoli uh, and what they have done, and I think that ultimately of the three, they're probably in the course of multiple games the best team. This is kind of awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, on Milan Napoli, I told you when the draw came out, beware of same country matchups and continental yep. competitions. They can be wonky. The better team doesn't always advance. Napoli twenty two points above Milan in Serie A, and yet they lose to them here. Reminded me of two thousand four when Chelsea knocked out the Arsenal Invincibles in the quarterfinals. But yeah, I, I can't wait for this as well. It's funny because every time we talk about Milan and Inter, we press it by saying these clubs are a shadow of what they used to be. And I still think that's kind of true. But nevertheless, they've each won Serie A titles the last couple of years. Here they are in the semis, and one of them is going to move on to the final. It's yep. going to be the first Italian finalist since Juve in 2017 and with a chance to become the first Italian winner since Inter in 2010. But you're not ready to say that Serie A is back in its, in its former glory. I don't know. The results in Europe okay. have been impressive right. this season. We'll see how this Champions League... But, I mean, you, but, but you would agree. Just yeah. You look at these two teams, their lineups, it doesn't compare to what it once upon a yeah, time. Yeah, I mean, you, you can make the case that this is... This is a blip, but we have been seeing the trend of Italian yeah. teams, Italian players, and Syria trend upward. So I think that this is absolutely, you should be bullish, and I am bullish and positive about the way that uh, Serie A is trending. And, and for AC Milan, they have some terrific players, Rafael Leão among them, but I still think the star is the manager, Stefano Pioli. He's done an incredible job the last few years, taking a lot of cast-offs from other clubs and, and putting together this really strong team. And then the other semifinal, Real Madrid against Manchester City. It's a rematch of last season when City had a 5-3 aggregate lead in the 90th minute of the second leg. And Rodrigo, who just scored two goals against Chelsea, came off the bench and scored two goals there to send it to extra time. And then uh, Benzema from the penalty spot. Uh, so Real Madrid advanced in miraculous fashion. Um, Real Madrid also eliminated City in the semifinals in 2016, the season before Pep got there when Manuel Pellegrini was the City boss. Keep in mind, though, I think the order of the legs is important here. First leg at the Bernabeu, second leg at the Etihad. That's big for City because Real Madrid, they're not going to have that home second leg magic. This is going to be decided at the right. Etihad. So I favor City in this matchup. You do? Yeah. Even the way they played in, if, if they play the way they played against Bayern <laughs> Munich, uh, Real Madrid is going to chew them up. 
I think it was very awkward to play with a 3-0 lead. They almost yeah, didn't okay. know how to comport themselves. Yep. Okay. Um, this weekend, anything uh, interesting, uh, you know, floating your boat there? Yes. In the Premier League, Arsenal in action on Friday at home to last place Southampton. So you would think they would pick up three points there. <laughs> oh, can you imagine? Okay. Uh, City are off as far as the Premier League. They play the FA Cup semifinal against Sheffield United on Saturday. The other semifinal, incidentally, on Sunday, Brighton Manchester United. So if the two big boys win, we could have a Manchester City Manchester United FA Cup final, which would be tasty. But in terms of the Premier League, it does mean most likely Arsenal are going to go seven points clear, but with City having two games in hand. How dare you? That that's slander of Southampton. There. That's <laughs> just you know, that's disres- that's disrespectful. But we watch because of the potential fragility that we are that we are seeing when it comes to uh, to Arsenal. Uh, and then in Germany, Bayern are two points clear of Dortmund entering this weekend. Uh, Dortmund home to Eintracht Frankfurt. Bayern Munich away to Mainz. Uh, Gio Reyna after another super sub goal last time out against Stuttgart. Does he perhaps get a start here or, or at least come on a little bit earlier with more time to do something besides scoring, which is he's been very good at lately? I mean... Why? Why would you? <laughs> why would? Why would you change? Uh, change it now? I mean, I know things didn't go well, but he's he's a super sub, and he comes on and he does what you ask him to do. And from Bayern Munich's perspective, you make this coaching change, Nagelsmann to Tuchel. You get you've been knocked out of the German Cup and the Champions League, and so he better at least win the Bundesliga. Otherwise, this is going to end up looking like an absolute catastrophe. So when does uh, Oliver Kahn uh, start feeling the heat? You know, it's amazing. Bayern, they have this sort of aura of everything they do must be smart and there right. must be some method to their madness. Right. Uh, Raphael Honningstein, I saw him in several interviews on The Athletic, and he could not bring himself to admit that this was a bad move getting rid of Nagelsmann. He was trying, no, you got to understand the way Bayern are and the culture. And he was trying to figure out some justification for it. And I'm sorry, so far there isn't. I mean, <laughs> there's no way you can argue that this move has worked out. And, and so... Not if, but but when Bayern Munich win the Bundesliga, and they're running around with the beers and the, the, the this and the that, does it does it pave over what has ultimately been a unsuccessful maybe maybe failure is too much of a season? Uh, no, I think regardless of what happens the rest of the way in the Bundesliga, this has been a failure of a it season. It must be weird in that moment for the players. I've never had the opportunity to to be celebrating something. And to kind of be going through the motions, if you if you will. I'm not saying that there's not genuine excitement for for winning yet another title, but you've done it so many times. Most of them, not all the players, but most of them have done it so much time. And like I said, in the context of what Bayern Munich is supposed to be and the the bigger fish that they're supposed to fry, it must be weird. It's like performance art almost. Oh well. Uh, I'm gonna ad lib a game here, much to Sean Sullivan's okay. chagrin. You know uh, what we love when you do that. I Bar- like- Barcelona hosts Atletico Madrid on Sunday. Barcelona are going to win La Liga, but this was a crazy week in Spain because they're still embroiled in that scandal over the fact that for many years they paid money to a company that's run by the guy who's in charge of La Liga officiating, so very fishy there. And the Barcelona president, Laporta, went scorched earth this week at a press conference. He said it's the height of cynicism for Real Madrid to be criticizing them when Real Madrid uh, are the team that historically has gotten all the refereeing favors and that they're the regime's team. Did you see that video? They put what he's out? referring to there is Spain was under a fascist dictator from the late 30s to the mid 70s, Franco, and he was an avowed Real Madrid fan. So a big part of Barcelona's identity is this idea that they're the underdog because Real Madrid is a team that the authority likes. And Real Madrid put out this video on their website, which people com- compared to Tupac's hit him up video, in which they <laughs> clap back and tried to show that Barcelona are actually the regime's team. And so Catalan politicians came out and pushed back against that. And we spent several days relitigating the Spanish Civil War and who was on the right side of that. And so the, the rivalry went to a, a different level this week. And against that backdrop, we have uh, La Liga activity uh, this weekend, a big game, Barcelona hosting Atletico Madrid. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I mean, and by the way, this whole thing has major messy implications because Barcelona would like to resign him, but they're waiting to see what the punishment is going to be. And also, they're going to have to use some phony accounting and they're hoping for acquiescence from La Liga. And La Liga's kind of mad at him over this refereeing scandal, so they're not going to bend the rules too much in their favor. So I, I think it makes it unlikely that they could figure out a way to resign Messi, but who the heck knows? I mean, just come to Miami, okay? Just, <laughs> just let's, let's just, you know, bypass. Do not pass go, do not collect 200. Well, you'll collect a whole lot more than 200, but go to Miami. 
That is it. All right, let's take another quick break. When we come back, it's time for Ask Alexi. Okay, welcome back. It's time for Ask Alexi, that part of the show where uh, you send in your questions, comments, concerns. Use that hashtag Ask Alexi or hashtag Ask Mossy. And uh, keep in mind that our handles uh, out there for uh, State of the Union are SOTU with Alexi. Or you can call into our State of the Union podcast hotline, which is 657-549-2297, 657-549-2297. What, ha- what do we have this show, Mossy? Uh, let's start with a voicemail. Let's take a listen right now. Hey, Alexi. Hey, Mossy. This is Brad from Eastern Washington State. Um, my favorite two sports movies are Major League and The Replacements. If you were to make a soccer movie about a group of misfits who find success on the field, who would you cast and what position would they play? including manager. Love the podcast. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Okay. Interesting. Brad from Eastern Washington State. He's making it clear that he's from Washington State. I, I, I appreciate that. Um, all right. So the replacements and major league are misfits in a professional type of scenario here, uh, as opposed to a bad news bears-ish type of thing, which is obviously kids. Now, the, the, the soccer kids thing has been done in different ways and to different effect. Uh, what is the kicking and screening or screaming or uh, that kind of stuff and the Will Ferrell, uh, the big green, that kind of stuff. So I guess if you're, if you're just saying let's do a, a major league type of thing, but do it with soccer, are you doing it in through the lens of, <laughs> of red, white, and blue glasses? Is it going to be an American soccer team? Which I actually think would be, would be kind of cool. Um, or are you making it more of a victory type of thing? And I know it wasn't, victory wasn't slapstick uh, and comedy type of, uh, type of movie, but it was an ensemble type of piece. And, you know, you had Michael Caine and you had uh, Sly Stallone and these uh, types of things. Um, uh, so look, if you're gonna if you're gonna do it, first off, in terms of the the coach, um, you know, I mean, you go you go for you go for greats, right? Like Clooney, Pitt. I'd be I'd be good with them. If you're doing again, if you're doing, not that they can't do English accents, but I'd like to see it done where it's, you know what I would you know what I would give you a comp to instead of these two, I would look much more towards a slap shot type of situation. I would like to see a lower division soccer scenario in the US in present day or you know back in the 90s or something like that and have it be a slap shot type of thing where the personalities and the experiences are much more important than the actual game that is framing it if you watch slap shot you don't have to know anything or care at all about hockey i think to be entertained and enjoy that uh, enjoy that film for uh, for what it is. And for those that don't know, it's um, one of the great, I think, quote unquote, sports movies uh, out there with Paul Newman uh, starring in it. I don't know who, 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 who do you got. My only contribution to this conversation is the fact that <laughs> when we did that sports movie segment recently, you were shocked that I hadn't seen The Damned United. Right. I have, in fact, now seen it. I and loved it. Yeah. Very, very good film. Yeah. I was I was disappointed that I didn't put Gregory's Girl in my films. Um, uh, and for those that don't know, it's an old movie. It came out in early '80s and stuff like that. But it it's really good, and it's like an indie, low budget type of thing. Did did Brad and thanks for the call? Did he say the Replacements is one of his two favorite sports movies? I guess so. Yeah. Brad, Brad. Oh, <laughs> don't don't crap on uh, Brad. Listen, H- Hoosiers, The Natural, Rocky. I mean. Yeah, come on. Yeah. But if, <laughs> uh, but again, you know, let us know if if you agree with Brad uh, in terms of this needs to be done. What does it look like? Because you know, I've I've framed how I would have it done. It would be the comp would be slap shot, and it would be a lower division, quote unquote, lower division type of scenario. I mean, hell, it could even be indoor soccer, and you make it a period piece from back in the '80s when indoor soccer was huge. And all of the craziness that went on, much more so off the 
and that I guess it would be the arena if you were doing indoor soccer. Because again, you want it to appeal to as many people as possible. The soccer people are going to be there, but you want it to appeal to people that maybe don't follow soccer or don't care about soccer and are just going to get into the incredible personalities and stories and the ridiculousness uh, that oftentimes was uh, indoor soccer back in the back in the day in the same way that minor league hockey lends itself to it. So good question there. I appreciate it. Thank you, uh, Brad, from Eastern Washington State. All right. Next up is a Twitter question. This all started when you posed the question right before kickoff uh, last night. You said uh, 60,000 fans in Glendale, Arizona to see USA versus Mexico. What percentage will be supporting the U.S.? And the replies that came in were that it was very small. And so that led to a discussion about this dynamic where the U.S. has to play quote unquote home games against decidedly pro-Mexican crowds. And C. <laughs> it's a lot. Jimenez. Ex, ex, Jimenez. Let's, let's do Jimenez, yeah. C. Jimenez, 1967. He posed a question, who are you blaming? Americans for not being big enough fans or Mexicans for being too big of fans? It's not like there wasn't an opportunity for Americans to buy 90% of the ticket and show up and go nuts, was there? Okay. Um, well, first off, I'm not blaming anyone. I'm just answering questions or comments that come to me on social media relative to the reality in the situation. Um, first off, I think it sh should be should be clear, and for those that have followed over the years, if and when we need to create an environment that is an advantage from a competitive standpoint on the field, we can and we do so. And you need look no, no further than obviously the, the years playing in Columbus or even recently going up to Minnesota and these ty types of things. But in a situation like this week, where it was a friendly game, midweek type of game, not in a FIFA window, um, I think we needed to maximize the revenue. And this is something that has been done for decades, okay? That revenue is necessary. That revenue is um, useful. And then hopefully you send that massively pro-Mexico crowd home unhappy in the way that they did last night. So that was, uh, that was a good thing. When it comes to the, the makeup of the crowd, you know, you knew that it was going to be a pro-Mexico crowd from the moment that you announced that, uh, that game, given, uh, you know, given where it was being played and when it was being played. And that's fine. That's okay. Because every player uh, that has played over the last 30 years and before that, uh, American player, has recognized that there are going to be moments when you are playing in your country in our country, here in the U.S., and it is going to be an away game. And you accept that, and to a certain extent, you harness it. I, I, you know, I, I vividly remember being in the Rose Bowl or in the Coliseum. You know, these, my country in Los Angeles, playing, representing my country, being the quote-unquote home team, and it being away game. And it fueled me. I wanted to shove it back in their face, <laughs> this crowd that was screaming and yelling for the away team in my own in my own country. And, you know, you you get over it pretty uh, you get over it pretty quickly. Again, I'm not I'm not blaming anyone. And I'm also not saying that we haven't made incredible progress and it has changed. And I think generationally it will continue to change. And, you know, last night I was uh, on Twitter, I was going back and forth with some people and, you know, someone was talking about if they had lived in Mexico for 40 years and lived and worked and raised their family in Mexico for 40 years as an American and America came and played in Azteca, they may go to Azteca and cheer on their American team. I said that may be the case, but their children may want to cheer for Mexico or their grandchildren may want to cheer for Mexico. And so this is about winning hearts and minds. And it's not easy because of, you know, the unique population and the wonderfully diverse population that we have in the United States, this was always going to be the reality of the situation. But the challenge and the opportunity is to, as those generations grow up, is to prove that you are worthy of their attention and worthy of their respect and worthy of their report, uh, of their, uh, of the support. And that takes that takes time. As I said, it's changed dramatically, but it's still uh, there's still a uh, a long way to go. You know, last night, you know the the um, you know the booing Walker Zimmerman walking up to the microphone and the booing of Walker Zimmerman and the, the booing of the national anthem. That is nothing new. That happens. I, I it never once 
as a fan, I mean, certainly not as a player, but as a fan at an international game, it never once crossed my mind to boo the opposition's national anthem. And look, I've played against China and Iran and Russia, and the list goes on and on and on. And you could find a million reasons from an American perspective why you would want to boo that national anthem. But no, this is, this is again, this is a moment, I think, of respect and unity in which you keep quiet. And then you can scream and yell and do, uh, do, uh, do what you want. So I think it's disgusting when uh, you, you kind of violate the opposition by booing or doing anything to disrupt the national anthem uh, of, uh, of the team that, uh, that you are playing. And, I'm, you know, it's nothing I can do to stop it. It's just people. And we all know that especially people in groups will do things that they wouldn't normally do if they were, uh, uh, if they were alone. And, and look, you know, ultimately, you know, last night, I know a lot of people called it, you know, a cash grab and, uh, and all that. And look, the United States Soccer Federation and the uh, Mexican Soccer Federation, they both made money last night. And hopefully that money will be put to good use. And it won't be the last time that it is a U.S. team playing at home in the United States and it being an away game. It's just the way that, uh, that uh, it's the reality of the situation right now. But like I said, it is, uh, I think it is, it is progressed and it is, uh, and it is, and it is changing. Uh, anything else on this? No, that's it. All right, let's take another quick break and we come back. Big, big news. And I got that in my uh, one for the road. All right, welcome back. It's the end of our show, and at the end of each and every show, I give you my one for the road. Big news, Masi. I, I was watching the uh, U.S. Mexico game, and as uh, as we mentioned, Cindy uh, Parlo Cohn, the president of uh, U.S. Soccer, was interviewed, and she dropped some big, big news. Come to find out that the United States, with our friends from the South Mexico, are going to bid to host joint host the 2027 Women's World Cup. As we know, the Women's World Cup is happening this summer down in Australia and New Zealand. And the next one is, remains to be seen where it's going to be. But if uh, Cindy Parlocone and the uh, uh, U.S. Soccer Federation and the Mexican Federation and all of us from a soccer perspective get our way, we're hosting 2027, which would mean 2026, the U.S. Men's World Cup hosted in the United States along with Canada and Mexico. And then if they were awarded the bid, just a year later, the next summer, uh, 2027 Women's World Cup. I would love to see this. And look, I know that there are folks out there that say, "Does how much does this help? Well, first off, and we talked a lot about money on this sh show, uh, it would make a tremendous amount of money, and FIFA loves that. And um, it would be another, get another injection, soccer injection, that our country and culture, I think, needs. Um, and to the extent that we can create it, which we certainly can given our infrastructure, that would be something that was good. I know that the conversation will come up, well, how does it help women's soccer to go back to a place that already is advanced relative to the rest of the world when it comes to women's soccer? And wouldn't it be better served to go to a different area of the, uh, uh, of the world and bring it, bring it up there by bringing a World Cup? And that is a legitimate um, argument to make. I don't think that anybody out there, and this is not saying anything crazy, has, like I said, the existing infrastructure to be able to host a World Cup. I don't think that the 2026 World Cup takes anything away from the 27 World Cup. It'll be kind of, you know, this, this year-long festivity. And the, the ending of the World Cup in 2026 is almost the beginning of the World Cup in 2027. And we all know that 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 effect of the circus leaving town. So from a U.S. perspective, we could actually use it to our advantage to not let that flame die out or not let it die out as quickly after the 26 World Cup by already pushing it forward to 2027. Now, we're going to have plenty of competition. There's lots of uh, countries and cultures out there that I think are going to put up good bids and real competition when it comes to 2027. But if the U.S. is involved in a bid for a major sporting event, and don't forget the Olympics, by the way, which we have, they are always going to be taken seriously because of the infrastructure they bring and because of the money that they can generate. And this is no different. So congratulations, at least initially here, 
on doing something that I think is big and is bold and can be of huge consequence going forward when it comes to not just the women's game, but soccer in America and yet another summer of soccer, if you will. So knock on wood, it all, it all happens. They get all their ducks in a row. And uh, US-Mexico is hosting the Women's World Cup in 2027. Uh, Brazil is bidding for this as well. Ooh. So we, we are on opposite sides. Ooh, my goodness. Well, you know, listen, may the best country win. Brazil has hosted a lot of big events recently. Obviously, the 2014 World Men's World Cup, which you were at, mm -hmm. uh, which also meant hosting the 2013 Confederations Cup the year before. The 2016 Olympics was in Rio. Uh, multiple Copa Americas. Uh, the Libertadores finals at the Maracanã again this year. There was already one a couple of years ago. Uh, an under-17 World Cup that kind of fell on our laps at the last minute because Peru couldn't host it. So now they're trying to add the Women's World Cup to that portfolio. But even P.S. Sunhagen came out and questioned whether uh, Brazil is an advanced enough uh, women's soccer country to deserve uh, that honor. So we'll see. So what, 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 are we possibly hosting Copa America too? The United States? Yeah. No, I, I think they are, yeah. 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 So we could have a Copa America, Gold Cup, Men's World Cup, Women's World Cup, all in the next four years. Oh, my goodness. And Women's then, Gold Cup. And, then, Co and uh, then Olympics in 28 Olympics. in Los Angeles. I mean, we're awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I will say, on the men's side, there's long been this feeling that it's kind of one for you, one for us, uh, in which FIFA, they, they ideally want to put it in these developing soccer nations to help grow interest, but they also have to reward the, the elite soccer nation. So for a long time, it was like 90 Italy, 94 USA, then 98 France, 2002 South Korea, Japan, 2006 Germany, then 2010 South Africa, you know, this back and forth. And so, yeah, I don't know if you apply that logic to the women as well. I don't know where Australia and New Zealand fall on that scale, but. Yeah. And, and you don't want it ever to be a burden. You don't want it ever to be a poison chalice handing somebody the opportunity and the responsibility and the cost and as we've said time and time again, it, it doesn't always work out where you kick on uh, after that. And that's not, you know, that's not to say, I mean, it doesn't matter where ultimately it's going to be, but I'd like it to be in the U.S. All right. Anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right. Listen, we appreciate everybody uh, uh, reviewing. First off, sending in questions, uh, whether it's on Twitter, uh, using that hashtag or on our uh, State of the Union podcast hotline with your 657-549-2297. And we really appreciate everybody downloading and reviewing and rating and subscribing and doing all the different things uh, that you do on all the different platforms uh, uh, that you do. We will be back again next week with more soccer. I hope you enjoy your soccer weekend. Yeah, just a weekend in general. What it has soccer now? We like to think it has soccer. But we will talk to you again next week. And until then, and as always, my friends, size the day.